Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, as we approach the 25th anniversary of the death of Diana, the Princess of Wales, we speak to the Oscar-nominated director of a new documentary called The Princess. We find out just how effective travel restrictions were on preventing the spread of COVID-19 in Canada. We speak to one of this country's foremost experts on nuclear disarmament about why the nuclear threat is at the highest since the Cold War. But first, the president of the Canadian Medical Association joins us to talk about a jump in emergency room closures right across the country and what needs to be done to tackle the growing crisis in Canada's healthcare system. But first up tonight, closer to home, for months you'll know, we've heard it on the show, healthcare professionals have been complaining about the shortages of medical staff and worsening quality of care at hospitals right across the country. Burnout, grievances about pay, there's a whole long list of things going on here, have led many workers to even leave the industry. We spoke to Dr. Alan Drummond a few weeks ago uh, from a hospital in Perth that was forced to shut for much longer than they had expected their emergency room at least. Uh, And of course, a number of hospitals forced to close their ERs over the past weekend is once again raising a lot of red flags. Ottawa's Mofor Hospital was among them, suggesting perhaps that the most acute effects of the country's shortage of nurses are starting to spread beyond smaller communities such as Perth, Ontario, and into large urban centres such as Ottawa. Well, the healthcare crisis was front and centre day, today as Doug Ford, through his throne speech, uh, said the government could do more to ease health system pressures, but is not yet offering up any new solutions. Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell delivered Ford's speech from the throne, which marks the start, of course, of a new legislative session in Ontario. More can still be done. Your government is actively engaging with health system partners to identify urgent, actionable solutions and will implement whatever measures are needed to help ease immediate pressures, while also ensuring the province is ready to stay open during any winter surge. Today's speech from the throne in Ontario. Of course, it's not just Ontario. We've seen similar closures across the country, including here in BC and elsewhere, Alberta. Joining us now with more is Dr. Catherine Smart. She's president of the Canadian Medical Association and a pediatrician in Whitehorse in Yukon. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So just a state of the union, it feels like last time we spoke, you certainly raised the alarm bells. I think everyone was well aware that this situation was deteriorating, yet it feels like it's getting worse this summer. How do you see it? I certainly think it is getting worse. You know, back in in early June, we were talking about the impending collapse of the healthcare system, and I think things continue to spiral downhill. You know, you could sort of look ahead and and see with the rates of burnout, the attrition of staff, you know, the volumes that our emergency departments were experiencing on top of the unresolved pressures of of COVID-19, you know, all the surgical backlogs and patients presenting with more advanced illness because they didn't get care during the height of the pandemic. The writing was sort of, I think, on the wall that things were going to get very tough in the healthcare system. And, And I think that's what we've seen. You know, now it's August, things are continuing to decline. We're seeing more and more hospital closures, limitations of services, ongoing cries for help from healthcare providers just saying, you know, we've never seen it this bad. Um, but what hasn't changed, I think, is the government. You know, we're still, I think, experiencing inertia in terms of them coming to the table with actual solutions. We're hearing a lot of conversation saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to do something. But, you know, I think the real question is, well, when? You know, this is not new. We've been talking about it for months and months. We've put forward many solutions. And what we haven't seen is any action. I guess the throne speech today was a bit of a litmus test. Obviously, Ontario is right in the middle of this crisis. We talked a lot about that hospital in Perth. It was just one example, but really a quite a vivid one. Then over the weekend, Mofor Hospital in Ottawa. Um, did you hear anything in that speech today that gave you any confidence that at least Canada's largest province is moving in the right direction? Well, I think, again, you know, what we're hearing is sort of a lot of words, but where's the actual plan? You know, you've got the throne speech saying, oh, yeah, we need to do more. And then you've got the Minister of Health saying, oh, no, this isn't unprecedented. This is normal. It's just because people are on vacation. I mean, these things are just not true. And and I, I think what matters is what you do. You know, talking about things and saying we're going to do something isn't helping. We need to really see action. And And I think... What you're really hearing right now from healthcare professionals is, you know, all of us are trained to manage critical situations. If you come into the emergency department and you're critically ill, you're surrounded by a team of people that identify your problem and rapidly work together to save your life. And we need that type of action right now from our governments. We need to really move beyond just saying the things and, and acting 
like we're going to do something. We actually need to do something. And I think that's what's getting so frustrating is we're, we're kind of done, I think, with the platitudes. Um, and I think it's really time to come forward with an action plan. And, and many of us are at the table offering solutions. Uh, but I think we really need to see the government come forward with saying, you know, this is what we're doing, one, two, three, four, five, um, rather than just these broad statements like, yes, we realize we need to do something, which isn't really helping. Canadian listeners should know that, of course, you have lots of ER experience as a pedi- as a pediatric ER uh, doctor as well. So you know exactly what it's like inside those emergency rooms. It's hard to imagine what it must be like because, as we've said over, you know, many times in these conversations, whether it be with nurses or doctors, I mean, these are some of the most dedicated professionals in society. And if they're saying, if they're you know raising the red flag, and no one's listening, it's hard to imagine what else you can say at this point. No, I, I agree. And, you know, I would say that generally as healthcare professionals, we, we tend to try to shield patients from bad things, right? You know, if, if we're understaffed, we haven't had a break, things are bad, you know, there's a lot of sick patients in the department. We try, when we come into the room and we're dealing with you, we try to be totally focused on the patient in front of us. We try to, you know, kind of shield people from the chaos and all the things that are going on and make people feel safe and comfortable. So when you see both same healthcare professionals, you know, sounding the alarm and publicly doing it over and over, and I think more and more voices joining in, in this, this conversation, people should really take that very seriously because these are not people that are crying wolf. You know, if they're out there telling you it's this bad, it's because it is. Um, and, and I think what we need is our governments to really be listening. And, and I think right now, so much of the moral distress that healthcare workers are experiencing is the fact that the government seems to be on an entirely different page. You know, none of us think there's simple solutions that are going to happen overnight. We know that it's too complicated for that. But what we do expect, I think, is to be on the same team and to be bringing that same sense of urgency to what's in front of us. And I think if if our government leaders could be there with us engaging in that and owning the problem collaboratively and and admitting how serious it is, that would go a long ways to, to having healthcare professionals feel like, okay, okay, we're all on the same team, we're getting somewhere. But it, it, it almost feels like the opposite is happening. And the worse things get, the more we're hearing governments try to reassure the public that things are fine when it's clearly not. And that is very distressing. Yeah, I saw you use the term gaslighting the other day, which I know is not a term you'd ever use lightly uh, when it comes to the, uh, you know, a spokesperson for the health ministry and in, in a health minister in Ontario referring to everything being fine, right? That, yeah. uh, that there's a real sense of, of anger there now. Well, I think, and I think it is the right term, right? Because, you know, what is gaslighting? It's when people try to tell you that what you're seeing with your own eyes isn't happening. And that's what's happening right now in our healthcare system. You know, we have nurses, emergency physicians saying, no, I go to work every day and this is how bad it is. And then you have a person who, you know, probably has never been in a hospital at 2 a.m. surrounded by people whose lives you're trying to save say, oh, no, everything's fine. It's like, well, you know, who do you think has the right lens on what's actually going on um, and that's what's so so frustrating because I think you know what's clear is no one government got us to this place it's no one politician's fault it's no one political party's fault we've been marching down this road for over 20 years so many people got us to where we are and I don't think it's about blame but we're not going to get to solutions if we don't start admitting there's a very serious problem and trying to pull together and move in the same direction and I think that's really what we need our leaders to do now and there's many of us at the table willing to dig in and do that work, but we can't get started if we can't admit that something's seriously wrong. Do you get the sense, I mean, I'm not quite sure what to make of what, because obviously I watched the, the First Minister's meet here in Victoria a little while back talking about money and, you know, needing more money from Ottawa and so forth. But you get the sense that a lot of people who are in charge of making this, these decisions, at least to get the ball rolling again, don't know what to do, that they're, that they're lost as far as I can tell. Well, it's very interesting. You know, I think it is the ultimate case of institutional inertia. You know, we have our political talking points over the provinces, so it's the federal government's fault because they've been giving us enough money. You know, the federal government talking point is, well, we're not really at the coal face of care. The provinces have to deliver the care, and that's their responsibility. And we sort of bat these political talking points back and forth. You know, the reality is everyone has a role to play um, and we need to pull together to solve this problem. It's not going to be solved by one level of government. And, and many of us, including the Canadian Medical Association, have advanced several very actionable ideas. And these aren't just our ideas. They're ideas that multiple healthcare professionals think are priorities. So people are being offered solutions. So it's, it's hard to understand, I think, for me, a little bit of why we can't see any action because they're being presented with very practical things that would make a difference. But there just doesn't seem to be the will to actually do something. 
coming up after this. We will talk about some of those solutions you've put forth. Dr. Catherine Smart is our guest this half hour. She's president of the Canadian Medical Association. Stay around. Stick around. This is what we need. We've got to start over. And, you know, two weeks ago, I was thinking they won't fix the system before I die. And my family's in trouble. I've got two great, three great grandchildren. Um, two of them don't have a doctor. My granddaughter, who's a single mom and with an autistic child, doesn't have a doctor who's moving out of town right now. My son, who's 59, and his wife haven't had a doctor for five years. That was the voice of Janet Mort. Uh, I believe, Catherine, you might know this story. This is the woman in Victoria who placed an ad in a paper, in the paper, looking for someone to fill out a prescription for her husband. Her idea was that, that you know, she was part of a Royal Commission on Education back in the late 80s in BC. Uh, she's an Order of BC recipient. Her idea was, we need to start over. That's how drastic she thought, thought the situation was. What do you see as the solutions? Is that something we need to do? Do we have, need to have another Royal Commission to figure out what's wrong with the systems in each province and figure out a solution? I don't think we need another Royal Commission because I think it's quite clear what the problems are. I think what we need is a willingness to admit what they are and move forward. You know, so, you know, what we were hearing there was really the failure of our primary care system. Um, And that is a huge issue right now in this country, because just as she was describing, you know, one in five Canadians without access to a primary care provider, this is a national crisis. Primary care is the foundation of our healthcare system. It is the most value for investment, and it's critical to preventing complications for people to managing chronic disease and giving people high quality and longevity in their lives. So you cannot, you know, say enough about the importance of a primary care system, but we have not invested in our primary care infrastructure or our primary care physicians to create a sustainable system. And now we're reaping the downside of that, which is this exodus of people from family medicine. So but, you know, again, the, you know, do we not know what to do? No, we absolutely know what to do. And family doctors themselves have come forward with many solutions. And what are they? Well, we, they need infrastructure support, right? The days of a family doctor running a, a private clinic like a small business are ending. It's no longer financially viable. People aren't doing it. Um, so, you know, we need the government to step in and provide that infrastructure support for family doctors so they can keep care in the community going forward. So that's a solution. We know that physicians need some variety in patients structure so that there can be some flexibility you know I think a lot of people don't realize physicians are paid in a very transactional way fee-for-service they have zero benefits there's no sick time no maternity leave no pension no you know no dental plan nothing I mean most people are graduating with two or three hundred thousand dollars of debt and not starting working until they're in their 30s well you know again this this is not tenable for many people you know women go on maternity leave and they're faced at either spending fifty thousand dollars of their own money to keep that clinic going or closing it. So we need supports for people so that they can have different ways of working that are sustainable. You know, the administrative burden of family medicine has escalated over the years where most family doctors are spending, you know, another three or four hours a night of unpaid time doing paperwork for their patients. Well, this also isn't sustainable. So they need teams, people around them to help caring for an aging and more complex population. So, you know, these are not rocket science things. We know what the issues are, but it's going to take an acknowledgement that primary care matters and a willingness to invest to modernize the system and bring it into this century. If our governments were willing to do this, I think we would see many people returning to family medicine, you know, having long-term group practices with teams so that you as a patient would know that's my medical home. And when I show up there, there's going to be someone there who can help me with my problem. But right now we're not investing in that. And that's why we have this crisis situation of so many people not having access to care. And that sounds like a very good place to start in terms of just where do you start, right? I mean, this is a very Malcolm Gladwell-esque question, but if you could have a magic wand to change one thing now to get this everything started in the right direction again, what would it be? Well, I think I'd, I'd, I'm going to pick two things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, the, the first one is absolutely primary care and, and what we talked about, because that, of course, has knockdown effects in the system, right? It, it, it's a huge issue for individuals, but also, as you can appreciate, when that system's not functioning well, it leads to overload on the acute care sector. 
people being in emergency departments that don't need to be there or, or there because their problems weren't addressed in the community and things could have been avoided. It also makes it much more difficult to move elderly Canadians out of hospitals and back into their homes or into long-term care because there's no one to provide that care. So if we solve the primary care crisis, it will help our acute care crisis. So I think that's really important. The second area that needs attention urgently is the human health resource crisis. And that is what's driving a big part of what we're hearing about right now in hospitals and in our emergency departments. And that needs to be taken seriously. And, you know, again, why is that happening? Well, no planning. There's no human health resource strategy in this country. We've been calling for that now for, you know, over a year. That's critical. We need to address why we aren't retaining nurses in the system. And that's for many reasons, quality of their pay, the workforce environment, them constantly being asked to do more with less, forcing them to work in unsafe work environments. So that needs to be addressed with urgency. Um, and I think if we can do that, we could start retaining people in the system and maybe bringing some people back. And then over the next years, you know, and for looking forward, we need to start with a national human health resource plan so that we actually know what we're doing and we can be training enough people to adequately staff our hospitals with some redundancy, right? You can't be always operating on the edge of the knife and that's what our hospitals have been doing for decades and it's not working yeah we're seeing what the edge of the knife looks like now right dr Catherine smart thank you as always for your time tonight i appreciate it thanks for having me well this month august the 31st to be exact will mark 25 years since the death of diana the princess of wales it seems remarkable how fast time has gone by i think like many of us i remember exactly where i was when i found out about the car crash that she and Dodi Fayad had been involved in in Paris. Um, I was at a softball tournament, a company softball tournament. I was working for the Montreal Gazette at the time. Uh, and we were in Ottawa. I think we were staying in like a, you know, a Days Inn or one of those kind of motels. And I remember coming back to the room and turning on the TV, I think to, probably to watch something else. And there was the uh, announcement that there had been this crash and we didn't know what kind of condition she was in. And, um, you know, it, it took a while to find out, I think several hours to find out that she'd in fact died. And just the the reaction to that was so visceral for so many people. Um, and I think a lot of people remember back to that day, including my next guest, who was only 11 at the time, uh, who's made a new documentary called The Princess about Diana, the Princess of Wales, her life, her death, uh, and many things in between. Uh, now, there's no lack of books, movies, documentaries, and dramas out there to tell what is a very well-known story. Uh, but this one is from a very different perspective. Academy Award nominee Ed Perkins and his team dug through countless hours of archival footage, some of it not much seen. I mean, a lot of it has been seen. It's out there. And then weave together this documentary called The Princess. It features no talking heads, no narrator. It just uses, uses these archives to take viewers back in time, sort of take us through the wedding, the introduction, everything you remember from Diana, those years, the boys, the birth of the boys. Um, you know, I was there at the same hospital when Kate gave birth, um, the same hospital where, where, uh, where William and Harry had been born, and just taking us through all that time, why we developed as a society, this fascination, this obsession, if you could call it that, with Diana. And the impact it had on her, watching her marriage fall apart so publicly. And then, you know, the scandals after that, uh, and, and then ultimately uh, her death and the devastation to the mourning that happened, not just in England, but everywhere, many, many places about it. The sense of loss that we felt after watching her life so intently for so long. Here's a preview of The Princess. Could I ask you first, Your Royal Highness, what was your instant impression? Well, I remember thinking what a very jolly and amusing and, and attractive 16-year-old she was. I don't know what you thought of me. But... Pretty amazing. <laughs> Sweet, kind. The princess has been the best thing to happen to the monarchy in centuries. Did you get a chance to see her? Yes! Diana is very big news everywhere. She's got the common touch. Prince realizes that he's taking second place. By the way. <laughs> a hollow and tormented marriage are giving the British media and its public little else to talk about. Just give me one question, right? She's been pushed from the word go. It's the media that's causing the problems. Leave them alone. Lady Diana. She's been through the worst that can be thrown at her. 
I think we've got an unhealthy obsession. I think she's very close to being a monster. She has a sick mind. She likes to be with people. She likes to be bloody well to... watched. <laughs> That's ridiculous. She has been humiliated. When you put a modern person in an ancient institution, they will be destroyed. And joining me now is Academy Award nominee and director of The Princess, of which you just heard the trailer, Ed Perkins. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Really excited to chat. You know, thinking back to um, to where we all were when we heard that she had died, and I think it's one of those moments that you've talked about in the past that that we all know where we were. Most of us know where we were. I was at a softball tournament in Ottawa, of all places, and I realized that part of the inspiration for this film was really looking back at how you felt as a younger as a younger man, as an eleven year old, back when that happened. Uh, what sort of inspiration did you derive just from your own experience with Diana's life and and death to make this movie? Yeah, I mean, I was 11 when she died. And 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 so I didn't kind of grow up with her in that sense. Um, I, I was probably too young to, to, to really remember most of her life. But I, I do feel as though that moment when she died and the way I found out has kind of seared itself into my consciousness in some way. And 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 the only other moment I can think of in my life that's had a sort of similar impact was 9-11, where, I, where it just felt like the world kind of just stopped on its axis. And 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 Diana's death was that, at least it was for me, and it was, I think, for millions of people around the world. Um, my memory was that I was 11 and my mum rushed into my bedroom and woke me up really early in the morning and was crying and was very, very emotional. And then we kind of, as a family, gathered around a little TV in my parents' room and just spent the next few hours just watching this kind of rolling news coverage. And And I then remember vividly spending most of the next week in the lead up to the funeral, watching that remarkable footage of hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets of London and cities all around the world. And this sort of extraordinary, I think probably unprecedented outpouring of collective grief. And people were, at least in my memory, were emoting in a way that almost as though they'd lost their own mother or daughter or or, or family member. And yet for most people, um, you know, most of us had never met Diana in, in person, and we only knew Diana through through the media, through your archive. And so I think as an 11-year-old, my overriding emotion wasn't necessarily sadness. I was obviously sad that someone famous had died. It's a tragedy. But I was confused, I think, for want of a better word. I was I was left confused as to why people were reacting in the way they were. And it kind of just it stayed with me. And I've always, for many, many years, felt like, it it would be interesting and hopefully worthwhile to re-explore this story, not with an attempt to try to kind of get inside Diana's head and try and understand how she was feeling or what motivated her decisions, because as interesting as that is, it's inevitably speculative. But but the the you know the, the more interesting thing for me is 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 what does Diana's story say about all of us? And and that was really the starting point for me emotionally. Could we make a film that slowly and and in a complex nuanced way try to unpack some of the myriad reasons why we had and millions of people around the world had such a bond with diana um throughout her life and obviously in the aftermath of her death it's interesting because i was about the same age when john lennon died and felt uh, not that the the outpouring was different but still very public and very memorable about uh and at that age trying to comprehend why this person mattered so much to so many without really understanding the whole story you know you'd heard of yeah, um yeah that's exactly it. and 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 confusion i think does does probably stay with you as a young child because it was such a you know when i went when i started making this film i spent a lot of time obviously looking back through the archive of her entire life but a considerable amount of that is that final week of of her story i guess you know that after her death and before her funeral that that week there and the footage is extraordinary and sort of unbelievable um you know these shrines were being built all over london um all over the streets and and the sort of sounds like a cliche but this very kind of un-british outpouring of of very public grief and i'm not i don't come at this cynically i don't i don't think people were pretending to be emotional people seemingly were emotional it seemed to catch so many people off guard and um yeah our whole approach here that i'm sure we'll discuss is is about trying to 
to better understand from an emotional point of view, as much as an intellectual point of view, what might have been happening then. The idea that you set off to examine, not in a historical way, not sort of in a you know history channel type way, but yeah. something far more immediate, why there was this obsession with her. And I think in some senses, there was a sense of guilt too amongst a lot of us around the world that we had somehow made this happen to some extent, you know, that we were both mourning and also complicit in something that had happened to her, uh, which is a really interesting way, I think, of looking at. at, So you've gone back and there's no interviews. uh, There's no talking heads. This is archival. And that was obviously a a decision you you made consciously. What was the the motivation to, to that approach? Well, I mean, the short, the very short answer is that the archive is the medium through which we got to know Diana, and and therefore one could argue consumed her and her story through archive. The the, the longer answer is that, um, you know, traditionally you, you would make and documentaries have been made about Diana, where you go and shoot retrospective present tense interviews with people who knew Diana, and they tell you about what happened and why Diana was you know what she might have been feeling or why she reacted in a certain way you know that's all interesting but as i said earlier it inevitably does involve a degree of speculation and and the more interesting thing for me is what does her story say about all of us and so the the whole archive approach is is in a sense trying to allow us to turn this camera back onto all of us and 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 i hope if the film works in any way it is to to hold a mirror up to us and to force us to ask ourselves difficult questions about yes our relationship to diana but more broadly our relationship to uh the monarchy uh perhaps more broadly still to celebrity which is obviously a relationship that continues to evolve and I think, as you said, so 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 um, insightfully, like the key for me is actually about our involvement in this story, because my take on this is that the Diana story wasn't something that just passively happened in front of us. You know, it, it was a story that I think many people were active participants in. And and therefore, while the film is not about assigning blame in any way, it is about trying to explore our complicity. You know, the extent to which we were involved in how this story played out, the way in which we projected onto Diana so many of our own hopes and dreams and fears, the way in which we sort of willed this this wedding into being um, and, and bought into the fairy tale myth. And so, you know, my strong take is that, that this whole story tell, says much more about us than it does about anyone else. My guest this half hour is Ed Perkins. He's director of The Princess, a new documentary about Princess Di, released uh, the same month as the 25th anniversary uh, of her death. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about the the archival search, because there is an awful lot of footage of Princess Di out there. And uh, I gather that you and your team went through a lot of it, trying to find the best stuff and came up with some really uh, interesting footage that people really haven't seen before. We'll be back with that. My guest is Ed Perkins. He's director of The Princess, a new movie released on the life of Princess Diana. It is not a historical look back at uh, uh, things we already know. It's not a look inside Princess Di and what she may have been up to with interviews. This is really taking a time machine back through archival footage, reliving the way that we both got to know Diana and also watched her life unfold and, sadly, her death as well and our reaction to it. You must have spent an awful lot of time. There is so much footage of her out there. How did you go about finding stuff that was new and different, things that maybe people hadn't seen? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the huge challenges. For 16, 17 years that Diana was you know, on the public stage, she was arguably one of the most famous, uh, uh, fam- certainly famous, but also photographed and filmed people on the planet. And so the amount of archive, the sheer volume of archive that exists on Diana is enormous um i set our archive team off to basically scour the globe to find everything and anything that had ever been filmed of diana uh, which is probably in hindsight a slightly naive request because i think close to a thousand hours very quickly came back our way um and the big first job in the edit was to basically watch through as much of this as humanly possible and i spent the first six or seven or eight months of the edit just kind of painstakingly watching through 8, 10, 12 hours of archive a day unedited um, and trying to find within it things that moved me or that I found interesting. Um, the truth is that 
this is a story that we already know. There aren't twists and turns and kind of narrative revelations in our film that people won't already know. What we're trying to do is bring the footage together in a new and exciting and, and, and insightful way that offers up a new perspective. Um, and so we were realistic about the fact that we were probably never going to find a sort of secret treasure trove of archive that no one had seen. But I think what I did come to see was that where the film, I think, works or where the footage works is that is on the level of subtext and often on the level of body language and when I was watching through the archive I would often find myself just kind of peering closer and closer to the screen trying to kind of work out what through their body language they might be saying to to me to each other uh to all of us I think I came to see Diana almost like a like a silent movie star from from you know the bygone era where you know she didn't actually speak that much throughout her public life and yet i think she had an instinctive ability to project her own very private story publicly and that was often through body language through the little tilt of a head or the curl of a smile and i just found myself drawn into that quite what some of it means i don't know but i think it's i wanted to try to make a film that because precisely because we don't have headshot interviews telling you how she's feeling or what she's doing, we're giving audience the space uh, to come to their own conclusions and and to draw their own inferences. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a painstaking, long, uh, but but really exciting and interesting process to kind of whittle a thousand hours of footage down to to the 90 minutes that you that you see in the film. I love that silent movie star analogy because it is so apt thinking back. I mean, perhaps with some hindsight, obviously, but when you look back at the way she was, because you're right, she did say very little as royals are wont to do, right? He, she did say very little. And yet you get the impression that she spent her whole life talking when she really didn't. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, the word you use hindsight is really important because actually we're, we are under no illusions that uh, people you know, I don't think anyone can come to this story fresh. You know, we have all, through osmosis, if nothing else, in the last couple of decades, just consumed the analysis and reanalysis of this story. You know, we've all watched The Crown. We've all watched Spencer. We've all read books. We've all heard podcasts about Diana. And so the truth is that we all, I think, bring, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, our own emotional baggage to this story. And our position was, well, that's okay. We can't control that. So our hope is that the archive only approach sort of acts as a bit like a time capsule. It picks you up. It takes you back into your own, hopefully, collective nostalgic past. But also, we're not just trying to get you to relive the story. That seems a kind of futile exercise. Our hope is that you can. we're giving you the space to bring your own hindsight to bear on this story and bring things and context and, and and things we've all learned in the last 25 years and bring that to this story. So in in doing so, I'm hoping that people will will, as I say, not just relive it, but also be able to reframe it for themselves and and in 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 large part see it afresh. One thing I found so interesting looking back 25 years now is that at the same time, this movie offers a lot of foreshadowing about what's about to happen with with social media and smartphones. None of those things exist at the then. And you forget sometimes that she lived in an era where media attention was very different from what it is today, that social media didn't wasn't around, that camera phones weren't around. Uh, yes. So at once it's kind of both, a, you know, it's sort of a, a way back machine. At the same time, it does offer so many hints of what about of what is about to happen to all of us. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point of view. I mean, it does feel like an origin story in some ways for, 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 for yeah, the changing media landscape and, and also for our continuing evolving relationship with people in public life. And I think an origin story for certain more recent events that have happened in the royal family. Um, one of the things I found fascinating looking back at the archive of Diana was that it felt to me that for, the, for, for almost the entirety of her public life, there was this constant conversation happening about her. You know, we really did dissect everything she did, everything she wore, everything she said for, for the better part of two decades. And people had very strong opinions on her, both public, positive and negative. Um, and there was this constant debate or discourse about her that we've tried to kind of bring back to life in some way um, with all these 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 sort of anonymous voices. Uh, but the truth is that the 
that just now as now on Twitter and social media, people have an anonymous voice and 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 there's a sort of democratization of voices. I think you start to see the origins of that back then where everyone's voice mattered. Everyone felt that they had a stake in the game. Everyone felt uh, a sort of an ownership, for want of a better word, over Diana or what she came to represent. And um, I think there's a lot to be gained from that. And I think, you know, because of that and and, and many other things, I, I don't think this is a historical documentary. Yes, it's about events that happened 25, 30 years ago, but I really do strongly believe that it actually has, as a story, more to say now than at almost any other point. And, and, and it's because... It's because it, it does act as an origin story or it, it does sort of feel strangely prescient of, of, of things that have happened more recently. Well, Ed Perkins, congratulations on all that hard work. It's a wonderful film. And uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk. I have some news to share regarding the Canada-US border. Over the past few days, I've spoken to President Trump about what we can do to slow the spread of COVID-19. Deputy Prime Minister Freeland has been in touch with Vice President Pence and Secretary Pompeo. I just spoke to President Trump again this morning, and we have agreed that both Canada and the United States will temporarily restrict all non-essential travel across the Canada-US border. Travelers will no longer be permitted to cross the border for recreation and tourism. You'll remember those words from Prime Minister Trudeau back at the height of the beginning of the pandemic back in March of 2020, uh, announcing the temporary closure of the U.S.-Canada border for all but essential goods vehicles in an attempt to slow the spread of COVID-19. You'll remember back to those days that travel restrictions, border closures, all of it was hotly debated. It was much talked about. It was unprecedented to use that word again tonight. Um, And the issue of travel restrictions became a very hot topic. Did we act fast enough? Were they effective? Who should we target? Which countries should be targeted? Which ones shouldn't be? Were the exemptions too widespread? Well, the first national-level genomic analysis of COVID-19 epidemiology in Canada now has some answers. Researchers have found that Canada's restrictions on international travel drastically reduced the number of COVID-19 cases entering the country during the first waves of the pandemic. But this is an important but. They were insufficient to prevent new outbreaks later. So how did they figure figure that out, and what lessons can we learn from it? Joining me now is the lead author of that research, Angela McLaughlin, is a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia and a research assistant at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV-AIDS at St. Paul's Hospital. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been a much-talked-about issue since the very beginning of the pandemic, travel restrictions, when to put them in, were they put in fast enough, and so on. Uh, What did you set out to find? Yeah, so we sort of set out to find whether or not these travel restrictions were effective towards reducing the introductions of SARS-CoV-2, the virus which causes COVID-19, into Canada. And we did this by leveraging publicly available virus genetic sequences um, in order to sort of reconstruct the early dynamics of the pandemic. Um, so what did you end up finding? Because it is fascinating what uh, you found sort of a uh, really a tale of tale of two different responses or two different impacts of these restrictions? Mm -hmm. So we did find that the March 2020 restrictions effectively reduced importations about tenfold within four weeks. And this was also coinciding with other non-pharmaceutical interventions, as you recall, including lockdown, etc. So overall, all of these restrictions taken together did reduce introductions pretty effectively, and it kept them at a low level through the spring and summer of 2020. But these low level of ongoing introductions did eventually seed new outbreaks in Canada, which replaced those early uh, circulating sublineages, um, despite having similar transmissibility. So while we had an effective uh, you know, response from the travel restrictions, it's also possible that they weren't quite enough to reduce the new seedings. So one of the interesting things you found is where it was coming from. And uh, not that it's a huge surprise, given our land border with the United States and and how much cross-border travel there is. Uh, But you found even in those early days that a majority of the cases were coming from uh, from the U.S. Yeah, in the first wave, we found that about just under 50% of the sublineages or outbreaks had originated from the U.S., 
um, along with contributions from other countries in Europe and a little bit from Asia as well. And this was also the case in the second wave, which was um, in the fall of 2020, the US contributed about 43% of the outbreaks of that wave uh, with a larger contribution from India and the UK. Did that come as any kind of surprise to you when you were, uh, when you were looking into to the data? I mean, not really, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a very tight trade and social relationship with the USA, as well as the world's longest land border at just under 8,900 kilometers. And, you know, despite having these restrictions on land and air travel internationally, there were still a lot of exemptions for, um, you know, professionals who work as drivers or crew, diplomats, etc. And at that time, uh, we didn't have access to rapid tests. And especially early on, we didn't even have access to vaccinations. So, uh, it, it led to a situation where there was porosity in the border, and uh, we inadvertently allowed for new outbreaks to be seeded. Yeah, so how, tell me how that works, because the um, the restrictions worked in at least reducing the amount of new cases coming or the amount of, of the virus coming into the country, but it had already settled itself. And, and there's a distinction there, I think, that, that's probably pretty important. Once it gets into the community and there's community spread, uh, it's very tough for any restriction to prevent it from continuing, obviously. To an extent, but it's not a, you know, black or white situation. There's definitely Mm -hmm. a lot of gray area there where you can imagine, you know, we have all these distinct communities across Canada. And although perhaps, you know, early on we did have, um, you know, quite a bit of seeding into new communities and circulation of these early sublineages, we, by having restrictions, prevented new communities from being seeded and from new outbreaks or new variants um, from being seeded in which may have been more transmissible. And of course, the variants of concern, which usually do have heightened transmissibility, they weren't, they didn't emerge and they weren't um, introduced until the fall and winter of 2020. But even still, we did have new introductions coming in that were able to replace those early circulating sublineages. And what did you find with with uh, because I guess in some senses and this may be the incorrect term, but there was sort of a law of diminishing returns on these restrictions. How did that work? Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't explicitly model it as like sort of a, a log logarithmic relationship, right. but we sort of were able to sort of with our conclusions suggest that there is a diminishing return. So restrictions are most effective uh, when the domestic prevalence is low, um, and also when there are too many exemptions, they're not as effective either. But you can imagine, so in a situation where you have really high prevalence, say during the Delta wave, for instance, there was a lot of circulating uh, COVID at that time, you know, maybe at that time, it's not as effective to have restrictions that are preventing new Delta sublineages of similar transmissibility from coming in because it was already so widespread. So it it is a very uh, sort of dynamic relationship. And yet, it is a difficult choice for uh, for policymakers, right? When to lift and when not to lift, and how how effective uh, these these measures are, because they do come with a co- they do come with costs that are outside of do. public health. E- economic costs, social costs for families who are across the border. You know, all these travel plans that people have to continually be changing. Um, so this is just the public health perspective, I would say, on this issue. Of course, a policymaker would have to weigh all of these competing interests. And I think to the to the public health perspective, having um, ongoing and timely genomic surveillance of what variants are in Canada, where they are, how they're spreading, can give us just as much resolution as possible into uh, the perspective of, do we need these restrictions? Are they going to be effective? Did did you have enough data? Because one of the complaints I always hear is that uh, because there wasn't a lot of testing going on, and then there hasn't been a whole lot of testing going on, at least not public testing, uh, that we don't really have a clear idea of where, of, at least recently, more where this is moving around to and how it's moving around. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been definitely a challenge of you know the whole field of genomic epidemiology because not all people who could become infected are even tested or know they're positive, and then among those who have been tested. The majority do not have a viral sequence representing their infection. So with the data that we use from this study, this is uh, viral sequences from across Canada as well as from around the world. Um, we, I think we estimated that it represented about 2% of the cases that had been 
confirmed positive diagnoses. Um, and there also were sometimes differences across provinces in terms of how many sequences were available over time. So, you know, we tried to normalize the data by subsampling a little bit, but there are always going to be um, some, some missing spaces where you sort of have to fill in the blanks a little bit. My guest this half hour is Angela McLaughlin. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia and a research assistant at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV AIDS at St. Paul's Hospital. We're talking about some work she and a team have done uh, on uh, the impact of travel restrictions on the spread of COVID-19 in Canada. It found that early on, restrictions on international travel did in fact drastically reduce the number of COVID-19 cases entering the country during those early waves of the pandemic, but were not sufficient to prevent new outbreaks over time. When we come back, just what we've learned and how it can be applied in the future, because we really went into this pandemic uh, blind in many ways to what kind of impacts uh, a global world where we had a lot of open borders and a lot of people circulating around, what kind of impact uh, restrictions would have in, in uh, on the movement of a virus in, this, uh, in these times. And now we have a better idea. We'll find out how we'll put those to use after this. My guest is Angela McLaughlin. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about some research her team has done, she and uh, a group of others has done, on uh, how effective travel restrictions were on preventing the spread or at least the entry of COVID-19 into this country. Um, What I remember from the outset of the pandemic was that although we'd often talked about how quickly a virus can move around the world and infectious diseases in in general can move around the world given, uh, you know, the global age we live in, that there wasn't a whole lot of Uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of reason. There wasn't much we could point to. We had never really lived through a global pandemic. And here we are. Um, Did you have you where would you like to see this work go next? And how can it be used in the future? Yeah, I think with this type of genomic epidemiology study, which, you know, is the product of a, a collaboration across different institutions, it sort of sets a precedent and perhaps an example of how we can track individual lineages and sublineages which are circulating between provinces and between communities and also monitor which of these particular sublineages are contributing the most to the COVID-19 burden in order to allocate where our resources go to, where do we do our most of our contact tracing, etc. So overall, I think in terms of like the systematic type of changes that I would love to see would just be ongoing support Uh, for public health surveillance programs, as well as sharing that data to public health researchers who would like to contribute to, um, you know, expanding our understanding of the pandemic dynamics. Because it strikes me just even with the work you've done that that with the proper data, you have you have a really good picture now of where how things move, where they're coming from and how they're moving around information that you think would be invaluable should we face something uh, like the outset of the pandemic again in the future. Absolutely. I mean, by studying these viral genetic sequences and how they are related to each other, we can reconstruct their past. We can build a family tree of how these viruses evolved. And in this tree, also sort of pull out some of the different epidemic dynamics that were going on in terms of, you know, the rate of transmission and also the rate of importation of viruses into the country. Or also on a different scale, you could also be looking at the rate of interprovincial viral migration. So it, I think there's a lot that can be gleaned from this type of study. Uh, and, and in a nutshell, just, just to go back to the beginning, uh, if you looked at what you found uh, in, in layperson's terms, uh, and, and you had to advise policymakers about how they were to implement these from a public health perspective, obviously, um, what did you find? I mean, in a nutshell, what, what, what did you find? In a nutshell, travel restrictions are one of the effective tools that we have to reduce viral importations, but they do have a diminishing return if domestic prevalence of similarly transmissible sublineages is high. Um, So I think that, you know, considering all the different perspectives between public health, economic, and social, policymakers should be ready to instate and repeal restrictions based on scientific evidence of whether they're effective or not. Because, you know, although they do have an enormous, you know, societal cost, travel restrictions are a very clear way that we can sort of flatten the curve, if you will, to um, prevent the overburdening of our healthcare systems. And in this case, also just knowing where that burden is coming from, uh, as opposed to letting politics or geopolitics, geopolitics get in the way of it. 
Yeah, I mean, blanket bans where, you know, travel is not allowed in or out of all countries, I'm not necessarily advocating for. I think that, you know, in an ideal world, all nations would have some form of genomic surveillance, even if that's like a random subset of sampling. And then we should, in theory, also be able to say, these are the geographies where we see a new variant of concern or interest arising. And let's put in a temporary ban on travel to this area. But if we have sufficient evidence to suggest that this ban is either not effective because this variant is widespread in other countries or already in Canada at a, a you know increasing rate, then let's also be ready to repeal that restriction as readily as we put it forward. Because one would imagine that with science as your background, with, with, with science as your backup, it's easier to voice to make those decisions public than it is if you're if you're caught in some sort of political situation where you're trying to because what we found i think during the pandemic was it was easier to impose them to than to take them back yeah i think it was it was challenging in in both regards but um sort of to that point improving communication with the public of how these policies are being informed and improving the transparency of the justification i think would go a long way towards sort of like encouraging uh, the public's trust of the policymakers and, you know, health officials and maybe generate a little bit more um, support for having these restrictions for a temporary time if they also know what the criteria are for putting them in place and and repealing them. Because a lot of the time it seemed like those criteria were a little bit obscure and um, it was hard for the public and even for myself as somebody who knows a little bit more to, to navigate what is driving these decision-making. And, you know, it's uh, definitely a lot to be learned in that regard. Angela McLaughlin, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Well, in Nagasaki today, they were paying tribute to the victims of the U.S. atomic bombing on this day in 1945, with the mayor saying Russia's war on Ukraine showed the world that another nuclear attack is not just a worry, but a, quote, a tangible and present crisis, saying nuclear weapons can be used as long as they exist, and their elimination is the only way to save the future of humankind. It is seven seven years ago this month that atomic bombs were dropped during the Second World War on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's estimated about 200,000 people were killed in those blasts. The nuclear radiation released by the bombs caused thousands more people to die from radiation sickness in the weeks, months, and years that followed. Meanwhile, in Ukraine today, reporter Britt Klinet says Europe's largest nuclear power plant has been the site of intense fighting and attacks. Russia and Ukraine pointing the blame at each other for the attacks. The Russian Defense Ministry releasing images they say shows the aftermath of the strikes. Ukraine claim Putin's forces have intentionally planted explosives at the site. President Zelensky accusing them of nuclear blackmail. And President Zelensky has also called for new sanctions against Russia for creating the threat of another nuclear disaster. All this is taking place as the month-long 10th Review Conference of the Seminal Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty continues at the United Nations in New York, with the UN Secretary General saying it comes at a time of nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War. Well, there are a few people in this country as well equipped to talk about this subject as my next guest. Douglas Roche is an author, a peace activist who has previously served as a member of parliament, a senator, and Canada's ambassador for disarmament at the United Nations. Thank you so much for your time tonight. A real pleasure to have you on to talk about this. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So, you know, over the years, I remember covering, actually, the anniversaries of Hiroshima and Nagasaki when I was based in Asia. And and these were always anniversaries that felt like you were looking backward a bit, although the threat was always there. But it always felt like you were looking backward. It doesn't feel that way anymore this year. Would you agree with that? Yes. The the, the danger of nuclear weapons that you've just referred to, and quoting the Secretary General of the the United Nations, who said it's worse than, than ever before, that danger doesn't seem to have been picked up by the public. The public is aware of the climate danger and the danger of the Ukraine war. But uh, to those other categories, you'd have to add nuclear weapons today, that there are 13,000 nuclear weapons in existence, and most of them held by the United States and Russia that are today at loggerheads. So it's a, it's a very dangerous period. And, you know, I don't want to go around... You know, as an alarmist, but I have to tell you that in all my years in in this field, I do feel that it's uh, it's it's more critical today than ever before. 
Which is a t- which is a big statement from someone who's done the amount of work that you've done to try to forward the the idea of disarmament. Uh, what do you think has caused this sudden? You know, I mean, we we knew that the threat was there. Where do you see the causes of this latest crisis coming from? Um, there's a, a reaction to uh, the 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 building up of institutions, uh, starting with the United Nations following World War II, uh, that uh, is uh, set off. Um, uh, competing views and visions. I mean, China has one view of, of, of how the world should be run, and the United States has a, has a competing view. And uh, the, the, the trust level that existed in order to build treaties, such as the Non-Proliferation Treaty that you referred to as being reviewed in New York right now, the trust level between nations has, has dropped. And, you know, one, one would I must say to, to zero, and so it's it's uh, this 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 tense tense uh, uh, situation between Russia and uh, the United States, which spills over into the international arena, uh, makes it very hard to um, to get anything positive done, and that's why people are quite concerned that the review conference that's going on now could end in a failure, and if it does, that will weaken the non-proliferation regime, meaning that more states will be able to access uh, nuclear weapons in the years ahead. So we, we've got to, and, and here we come to Canada. I mean, Canada has an instrumental role to play. We do not have nuclear weapons, but we have a responsibility with other non-nuclear states. We have a responsibility to work to press the nuclear weapon states to fulfill their obligations under the non-proliferation uh, under the non-proliferation treaty, and those obligations center on the uh, the uh, uh, negotiations uh, that that must take place between the nuclear weapon states to 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 reduce and eliminate their nuclear weapons. So we, have, we have to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing this. The Non-Proliferation Treaty is perhaps one of the most successful international agreements, considering the scope of what was being tra- attempted is one of the most successful international agreements in history, in, in, at least in modern history, I would say. I mean, I don't know if you disagree with that. I mean, what would the consequences be should it start to disintegrate? Yeah, uh, uh, unravel or disintegrate. Well, it would mean that uh, the final check on states uh, such as Iran and, uh, and uh, North Korea uh, and uh, possibly Saudi Arabia behind it, and, and then and then some other states in the Middle East, the possibility of their acquiring nuclear weapons will increase. So the Non-Proliferation Treaty was constructed in, uh, and came into existence in 1970 uh, to to stop the the spread of nuclear weapons. And so it's been I wouldn't say it's been entirely successful, but it, it, it uh, because there are nine states. I said. The United States and Russia have, have most of nuclear weapons, but there are a total of nine states that, that, that do possess nuclear weapons today. And uh, the, while that number is, is, uh, is serious, it's, it's not as bad as was anticipated before the Non-Proliferation Treaty came into existence. When President John F. Kennedy in the, in the 1960s foresaw the day when there would be 25 or 30 countries that have nuclear weapons. So it's, ha- it's had that checking effect in in the years uh, that, that we've uh, we've seen, but uh, the unraveling of the NPT now as a result of the breakdown of trust and the breakdown of the strength of institutions uh, increases the danger today. I mean, you spent a lot of time at the UN dealing with this very topic. I'm sure you've been watching what's been going on at the United Nations over the last six months or so since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what do you make of, of just the atmosphere, because it feels like something very important, and that is, you've mentioned it, that, that relationship of at least some modicum of trust between the U.S. And, and, and the Soviet Union then, Russia now, that existed during the Cold War to some extent. It feels like even that has been lost. Yes. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you're, you're, you're correct. Uh, that, that, that level of trust that 
even in, say in the 1980s, when Gorbachev and Reagan, President Reagan of the United States and President Gorbachev of the Soviet Union, had a certain amount of trust when they came together in Geneva and they agreed on, a, on uh, that uh, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And that led to uh, to some other minor treaties uh, following that. And so there was a level of trust. And then the, 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 the Cold War ended and... Uh, the we lost an opportunity to put it that way we lost a great opportunity to bring the world together and the for example in 1992 the united nations security council held a summit meeting for the first time that is to say the heads of state of the security council actually came to new york and met and i was there i, I remember it well and it was a moment of hope but then it fell apart as the 90s, as the 1990s progressed, and then the, the most serious thing of all, of course, was 9/11 in 2001, when the United States was directly attacked, and so that began a, a new war on terror, and it, and it, and it uh, revived militarism, and so as the years have progressed, and we went through the Iraq War, and now now the Ukraine War, the militarization of foreign policies of all governments is taking place, even Canada. Canada's foreign policy is itself being militarized. But the United States, of course, the worst of all in that, in that respect, because they led the expansion of NATO countries, which encircled Russia and, uh, and laid the conditions that Putin then later tapped into in an, in an aggrieved manner. Now, I want to make it clear that Putin should be condemned for the invasion, for the aggression he's perpetrated on Ukraine, but the conditions that he that he was dealing with uh, were affected by a Western disdain for Russia uh, after the end of the Cold War. So you know, the only way out of this is to have is to have a, a process of common security. That is to say. Each side or all nations have to feel that they are secure and without one nation or another dominating. And this is the, the main problem that we're facing today, which has produced the arms race in, in conventional weapons and certainly in nuclear weapons. When billions of dollars are being spent by, by the nuclear weapon states to modernize their nuclear weapons at the expense of the poor people of the world, because that money that's going into nuclear weapons is money that is desperately needed in health and education and all sorts of things for vulnerable peoples of the world. So we have to look at security from a much broader perspective than militarism. Douglas Roche is our guest this half hour. He has previously served as a member of parliament, uh, a senator, Canada's ambassador for disarmament at the United Nations. Uh, we're talking about today is the uh, 77th anniversary of the atomic bomb being dropped on Nagasaki. Saturday was the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, and it comes this year with uh, some warnings, including from the UN Secretary General, uh, the Prime Minister of Japan today, also saying the same thing, that never in recent years, or at least since the end of the Cold War, does the threat of nuclear war War, or at least the use of nuclear weapons feels so acute as it does today. When we come back, we'll go back to something that uh, that Douglas Roche touched on a little bit earlier, which is what is Canada's role? What can we do here, even as a non-nuclear nation? What can we do to try to advance this theme of disarmament, specifically at a time where things seem much more dire than they have in several decades? That's next. Former MP, Senator, and Canada's Ambassador for Disarmament at the United Nations, Douglas Roche, is our guest this half hour. We're talking about the anniversary today, the 77th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Saturday was the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, always a time to reflect on the state of the nuclear threat around the world, something that for many, many years was seen as sort of something that still existed, but it's certainly the threat was something that felt like it came from a different era, uh, but no longer. Uh, there's been a lot of warnings since the war in Ukraine erupted that, uh, that we are facing a dangerous time, something akin to what was the threat was back during the Cold War. Um, Mr. Roach, I mean, Canada's always played a bit of an interesting role when it came to the to the advancement of disarmament. Certainly, your career is proof of that. What role could Canada play now, do you think? Is there an opportunity for Canada to try to at least uh, play a role when it comes to advancing the cause of disarmament, given the threat that exists? Yes, there certainly is a role for Canada. Um, in, in 2017, a group of nations came together 
and uh, formed a new treaty called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And they did this because the nuclear weapon states uh, were not fulfilling their obligations to the non-proliferation treaty, which we discussed a few minutes ago. And so they said, because you're not fulfilling your obligations, we're going to have a new treaty that will ban the actual possession of nuclear weapons. And so 122 states signed, uh, uh, 122 states voted for the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That treaty prohibits the possession of nuclear weapons. Now, you have to sign on to it for it to take effect. And so 66 states have now ratified that treaty. Canada, as a member of NATO, has refused to sign the treaty, to, rec- to even to recognize it. And I think it's very unfortunate because NATO has taken a stand that nuclear weapons are the essential guarantee of security, which has been proven to be wrong. Uh, but in any event, they, um, uh, Canada has, has, has held to a NATO position which opposes the treaty and the prohibition of nuclear weapons. That's very unfortunate. So we have to keep pressing um, Canada to stand up in the international arena uh, for a nuclear disarmament. And the best way to proceed on that now is the enlargement of the new treaty and the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Does that feel like th- there's a possibility there? I mean, obviously, NATO is expanding now. A, a, a legendary non-nuclear nation, Finland, is now involved in it. Do you see there being any pressure as this continues for, for that to happen? Or, or do you worry that it's simply going to, as long as this war in Ukraine is going on, that there will be no movement on, on nuclear weapons? Well, of course, you touch on a, on a, on a very real point, what the, what the effect of the, the global effect of the Ukraine war to paralyze movement forward on, on, uh, on other aspects related to peace. But we, I, I, in my view, we have no choice. We have to keep pressing for the reduction and elimination of nuclear weapons. It's simply too dangerous. The, the, uh, it's, the, the, the medical community, the scientific community, the legal community, they've all established very well that the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of the use of any nuclear weapon would overwhelm parts of the world where, where this took place. And uh, as a result of this, famines would uh, would happen, and uh, you know, I mean, I mean, complete chaos. There is no way the health or hospital systems can cope with with anything of, of this of this magnitude. And so, the the only way to guarantee that nuclear weapons will never be used uh, is to uh, proceed with their elimination. And that, of course, is what the Non-Proliferation Treaty, you know, fifty years ago, you know, seventy years ago. Uh, tried to try to do to to establish the conditions for a world free of nuclear weapons, and this is not this is not this should not be dismissed as some sort of idealism, and, and not at all. It is the height of pragmatism because we cannot have weapons of mass destruction, uh, you know, sweeping around the world and expect uh, to be. Uh, uh, that, that we won't be as, uh, catastrophically affected by this. So Canada needs to stand up, and, and uh, we, we need to just keep pressing them. Yeah, and I, I only have about a minute left, but I guess I guess what, what we're seeing, at least with Vladimir Putin, is that uh, when a push comes to shove, there there is, I mean, in this case, he's shown some willingness at least to threaten to use them, and we hadn't seen that in a very long time. That hadn't been a concern for a state actor to actually, I mean, other than North Korea, I suppose. But um, yeah, that must be concerning. I mean, obviously it's concerning, but we just wonder if we can if we can find our way back up the path that you walked for so well, many years. Well, we've got to find our way. Uh, that's what diplomacy is all about. Uh, in, the, in the Ukraine war, there's got to be a ceasefire and there's got to be negotiations. And we have to find a way to uh, uphold uh, international law uh, that's that's why the United Nations was created in the first place, and we're in a down period now, but we've got to work our way out of it. And you work your way out of it by having the political will, by having political leadership, and by a, a willingness to negotiate a, a, a program for common security. That's not beyond our ability, but uh, it, it demands a strong political will. And, uh, and the anniversary that we're now having today of August the 9th, the bombing of Nagasaki following the bombing of Hiroshima, ought to remind us of the consequences of a failure to act. Douglas Roach, thank you so much for your time tonight and your perspective. It was a real treat to have you on. Thank you very much. 